All right, guys, welcome to week two of Hill to Die On. And if you missed the first week, let me bring you up to speed. One of the things that we're talking about in this series is what are some of the core beliefs to Christianity? That's what we're discovering. We're discovering what are some of the hills to die on, what are some of the core, and what are some things that we should not be dying on, some things that are kind of the periphery. And it's okay to have beliefs, it's okay to have creeds, but one of the things we learned last week, that if everything is important, then nothing is important. Another way of saying this is that there are some beliefs that we hold closed-fisted, which means we can't compromise on those. There are other beliefs that we hold open-handed that, yeah, they're important, but they're not crucial to the faith. And, you know, one of the things, uh, how many of y'all, by the way, have you done your homework from last week? Let me see. Good job. Way to go, Greg. I see you, dude. That's awesome. Now, one of the things that I would encourage you to do as you do that, if you haven't already, uh, it's actually in your bulletins. Um, is you got to figure out what are some of the core and what aren't. And it, just because they're not core doesn't mean they're not important. But you need to ask and answer this question, what is essential to believe in order to become in, into faith with Jesus Christ? This question will be up on the, on the television. What is essential to believe in order to come to faith in Jesus? That's the question that we're asking. And one of the things that we discovered, discovered last week is whatever you put at the core, whatever hills you're going to die on, you have to include love. You have to include love because Jesus says of all of those things that love is the most important. Loving God, but also loving other people and loving other people that might disagree with you about your beliefs. Now today, we are looking at the idea of should faith and politics mix? How many of y'all are a little nervous that I'm even bringing this up? All right, thank you. Uh, just as you're nervous, I am also very nervous. Um, and I'll tell you, I'll say this before, when I get nervous, the bottom of my feet sweat. So I take off my shoes because if not, I will slip and fall and y'all don't want to see that. So uh, this is a nervous topic because this is not an emotionally neutral topic, especially in 2016, right? Why in 2016? Everybody knows, unless you've been hiding under a rock, that we are electing a new president. And everybody is fighting. Everybody's kind of saying, you've got you to do it this way. and You've got to vote Republican. You've got to vote Democrat. You've got to vote Tea Party. You've got to vote Libertarian. Whatever it is. And we're all just kind of fighting, trying to get our people in there. And, and it's just, we, we, we fight it for our party, our political candidate, and we're trying to get the person we want into the Oval Office. Now, again, I've talked to so many people, uh, and so many people, the, the talking heads, I've listened to the radio. One of the things I've heard a lot about this election season in 2016 is that everybody's worried. That there is so much tension, there are people who are afraid, there's a, there's a, there's a period of uncertainty because the economy... I mean, the economy's kind of going up, but has anybody else noticed that gas has went up for 50 cents the past week? Besides myself, right? I mean, it's just, it's just uncertain. And there's this level of anxiety I think all of us feel. There's a level of fear. There's a sense of insecurity. And so many people on both sides of the aisle are just predicting gloom and doom unless they get their political candidate into the Oval Office. 
I mean, there are some people who are freaking out that if Hillary becomes president and then other people on the other side are freaking out if Trump becomes president because when Trump tells Putin, you're fired. You know, what's going to happen when he fires some type of, you know, political or, or, you know, a bomb, all that stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, right? Everybody's worried. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. Everybody's worried about the future. And people are thinking, unless we get our candidate in the Oval Office, then everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. There's so much insecurity, uncertainty, and fear around this presidential election. And I'm hearing so many Christians in our country, especially in this election cycle, especially with our economy being unsure, unsure it's like Christians are losing their ever-loving minds. And I'm sure Jesus must look at us and think, what? You are living in the United States of America, and you're freaking out because who might become president? I mean, about the economy? Have you forgotten the God that you follow? Have you forgotten the Jesus that I walked into Jerusalem, rode down Main Street knowing that I was going to be arrested, beaten, and that I was going to die? Now tell me again, what are you worried about? I mean, it's kind of embarrassing if you think about it. And if you think it's embarrassing enough, wait till you read the verses that we're going to look at today. Because these verses are amazing. I I could spend weeks on these verses, and I can't do that. Because we've got to move forward. But we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Now let me give you a little bit of context. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, we don't know if it was a man or woman, Jew or Gentile. We don't know who authored this book. But the, one of the things that I do know is that the early church, when they looked at this book, they said it has to be included within the 66 books that we say are Scripture. And one of the things that we're going to see is that this book was primarily written to Jewish Christians who were beginning to wonder, is it worth it? And is it working? Is it worth it? And is it working? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when there's so much at stake? I have lost my job, how my kids have been mistreated. Uh, is it worth it that some of my family have been thrown to the lions into the Colosseum? Is it worth it? And is it worth working? Are we making a difference? Now, here's the thing that you and I can't imagine because we have 2,000 years of history. You see, back 2,000 years ago, they didn't know how this whole Christianity thing was going to turn out. They didn't. Uh, They didn't know uh, what this little group of people that believed that someone rose from the dead, how it was all just going to come to play. There were no guarantees. They could not have imagined all the churches on all the street corners and all of the streets and communities here in the United States of America. They could not have imagined how the church spread not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but literally to the uttermost parts of the earth. They could not imagine that somebody was married, that they were married in a church by a religious person. They couldn't imagine when somebody was buried, that they were buried in, uh, beside the church, like in a cemetery. They could not imagine. But, but, but here's what I know. They, they knew... They knew Jesus, and they knew to trust in this whole idea because they had either met somebody who saw Jesus rise from the dead or they had seen Jesus being raised from the dead themselves. 
So these Jewish Christians had no idea, is this going to go anywhere? Is it going to spread beyond our little town? Are we kidding ourselves? Are we lying to our children? Are we throwing our lives away? Is it worth it? Is it working? Is it worth it? Is it working? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 speaks into those two questions. Is it worth it and is it working by talking about faith? Hebrews 11 1 says this. Now faith is what? Confidence in what we hope for and what? Let's say it together. Assurance about what we do not see. Now that is the definition of a biblical faith, but it's just kind of the definition of faith in general. In fact, if you're not even a Christian, you don't believe the Bible, you're not a person of faith, that is the definition of faith, and let me explain how it applies to you in this situation. How many of y'all have ever applied for a job? Let me see your hands. All right? That's almost 100% of us. If you're a single guy not raising your hand, that might be the reason you're single. Just saying. All right? Now, here's the thing. When you apply for a job, right, you, a lot of times you give them your resume or you have some type of interview, and if they like you, they offer you the job, and they, they say, okay, you're going to work for so many hours, for so many weeks, for this amount of pay. And here's what it is. You are confident that at the end of those two weeks, you are going to get what you're hoping for. And what you hoped for was what? A check. Money. Exactly right. And you had assurances that they were going to come through. So you worked like you were going to get paid. But had you gotten paid yet? Absolutely not. That all is faith. That's what faith is. It's confidence that someone is going to keep their promise. But look at verse 2. Now, faith is confidence in what, what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, the author goes through the entire Old Testament and begins to tell these stories and these talks, and he talks about all of these famous people that you grew up hearing in Sunday school, and if you grew up in church, you've heard a lot of these names. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel, Samson, Rahab, this list and list and list of names over generations and generations and generations. These people were commended... Because God made them a promise, and they lived their lives as if God was going to keep his promise. Faith is simply confidence that God is going to do what he's promised to do. And living your life by faith is simply living every day that God can be trusted and that God is going to keep his promise. Now, this next verse, verse 13 all these people were still living by faith. That means they got up every single day and lived their life as if God was going to keep his promise. They were living by faith when they what? Died. Well, stop out. They didn't get the paycheck. They lived their entire life trusting God and living as if God was going to keep his promise, but they never saw God actually come through. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. God said to Abraham, I am going to create a massive family out of your son. And that out of your son, an entire nation is going to spring forth. The whole world will be blessed through your descendants. But Abraham never saw that fulfilled. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids. But when Abraham turned 100, 
and Sarah turned 90, Sarah got pregnant. Oops. Right? And what do you do with a baby when you, when you get pregnant at 90? Well, you either laugh or cry. They chose to laugh. They named him laughter. I can't even make this up. Isaac, which means laughter. But yes, they had a child, but they didn't see this child become a great nation. They didn't see that the entire world was going to be blessed. But here's what you're going to realize is that what's so amazing is that eventually happened, but Abraham never saw it. Jacob never saw it. Isaac never saw it. Moses didn't see the fulfillment. Generation after generation after generation, yet there was always this group of people that had faith in God because they believed that God was going to come through, but they never saw him come through. Now think about this. How convicting is that of us. You and I, we pray on Monday, and if God hasn't shown up by Thursday, we freak out, right? I mean, you're not sure that there is a God. You begin, I gave God four days, and I, okay, I'm going to give him an extension because I know he may not think that, you know, my uh, prayer request is important. I'm wanting to get a date by Friday, so I'm going to give you another week, and if you don't give me that date, then I'm just, I'm just going to go to another faith. If God doesn't come through, or maybe God doesn't answer your prayer, someone gets sick anyway, something bad happens, and it's like, how can I believe in a God who's so untrustworthy? That's how you and I are. And this group of people would say, what? I mean, we lived our entire life trusting God, and we never saw him come through on his promise. Yet we trusted him anyway. And you're like, I'm going to give you four days? The author keeps on pushing down. He's, look what he says next. These Old Testament people that others were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. I had to explain this first service. Stoned here means that somebody took stones and they hurled it at them. It wasn't like they were in Colorado smoking something, Okay. Different. I know I'm one church people. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put in. Uh, they were put to death by the sword. All right. And I'm going to keep on going. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and it's like the author right here pauses. He puts his pen down. And he pushes back a little bit. And he muses and he kind of looks off into the distance and he thinks for a minute. And suddenly, the emotion of all of these stories of Abraham who left everything, of Moses and Pharaoh and Joshua and the Canaanites and David and Goliath and Daniel and the lion's den, they all just kind of overwhelm him. And the author thinks of all of these amazing people who were connected by faith. And he connected the dots all the way back to the first century when he's writing this. And then he begins to think this. Oh my gosh, what if they had given up? What if they had been unfaithful? What if they had given up on the promises of God? And then he writes one of the most powerful statements in this entire book. He says, that, says this, they went around in sheepskins and goat stands, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and then he says this, the world was not worthy of them. Maybe when he was thinking about his own gripes and complaints, the fact that sometimes he was attempted to abandon God because God didn't come through by Thursday, the author thinks the world was not worthy of of them. Did you know that there was once a version of faithfulness uh, to God that elicited heroic living? 
Do you know that there was once a version of Christianity, once upon a time, that caused people to stand back and said, Oh my gosh, can you believe it? Who are these people? There was once a version of Christianity that caused people to stop and stare. There was once a, a version of Christianity that caused people to be so impressed that even if they didn't believe what they believed, they were in awe because of their faith. Verse 39, these were all commended for their faith. Look at this, and he just he, he reminds us, yet how many of them? I'm sorry, how many of them? None of them received what had been promised. And this next part is really good because this is where you and I come in. Since God has planned something better for us, the reason why, listen, the reason why God didn't come through on his promise on the previous verse, the reason why God didn't come through on their promise while they were alive is because God had something bigger and something better for the entire world. Here we are, halfway around the world from where all of this was written. Here are, we're celebrating a Jewish carpenter. Wow, God was up to something so big and so much better that the reason why God didn't come through for them is because he wanted to come through something amazing for us. There's the us. That only together with us, they would be made perfect. Now that word perfect, the Greek word perfect, there literally means a completion of God's plan. Let me summarize it this way. They were looking forward, and they were faithful. They didn't see any of the plans and the promises come together, yet they remained faithful. We, on the other hand, we're looking back, and we are fearful. If you think about it, there's so much evidence for us that God made that promise to Abraham and God fulfilled it through Jesus and that Jesus was raised from the dead, the church was launched and not only survived but thrived and here we are 2,000 years later. There's so much evidence for us. There's so much reason for us to trust God and his faithfulness. We have absolutely no reason in the world to be fearful. We should be the most fearless, the most confident, the most humble people on the planet, not because of what God had promised, but because of what God has done. We are on the other side of God's promise. So now he says to his first century audience, now let me tell you what to do. In light of all of those things that have happened, he says, therefore. Now anytime you see therefore, you've got to stop and ask, what is it there for? In light of God, what God has done, in light of the fact that God has kept his promise, in light of the fact that these men and women, all of these, these people were faithful even when God didn't seemingly come through in their life. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And he's talking about all of these Old Testament saints. Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Jacob, Rahab, Samson, David, uh, all of this, uh, Daniel, all of these people. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, all of these people. He's talking about, and, and for us, it gets even better because we not only have the Old Testament saints like they had, but we now have all of the New Testament. There's Peter, right? There's Paul, there's Mary. They form a really good trio group. Nobody got that in the first service either. I need to cut that out, okay? Um, there's, but there's all the people in the first, second, third century. There's Augustine. 
There's all of the, the, the Christians that, uh, in the 15th and the 16th centuries that translated the Bible into the language of the people in Europe. We talked about many of those last week. There was uh, Wycliffe and Tyndale and Luther and even the people of the 19th and 20th centuries we could put in this cloud of witnesses. People like Dwight L. Moody, Billy Sunday, C.S. Lewis, Jim Elliott, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, all of those are part of this extraordinary cloud of witnesses that God can be trusted. Is it worth it? Is it working? And those cloud of witnesses would say yes. So he says to us, therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us hide, let us whine, let us complain, hoard our resources just in case. Let's put our Bibles in a drawer. Let's build bomb shelters, purchase ammunition. Let's blame the cops, blame the president, blame the teachers, blame our mamas, demand our own rights, build a wall, tax the rich, play it safe, find somebody to sue, take back our country, and pray that Jesus returns so that we don't have to suffer. By the way, that's the message translation. It doesn't say any of that. But can you imagine how you and I must sound to this great cloud of witnesses? You're worried about what? You're worried about a presidential election? (laughs) You're scared of who? You're worried about Hillary or Trump being president? Try Nero. Try Titus. Try all of these Caesars who killed all of these Christians. In fact, forget about these great cloud of witnesses. Imagine how we must sound to the Christians living in Syria today. And the Christians living in Iraq today. To Christians who are crowded into refugee camps and they wonder where their sons and their daughters are. With ISIS attacking on every side, these Christians who are literally being crucified and killed and sawn in two that they're afraid to even imagine what has happened to their, to their little daughter or their little son. And yet, they are faithful and they get beside their cot every night and they pray to a God and pray for grace to a God that they believe in because they trust God. They have faith in God even though they're not seeing God come through on his promises right now. How embarrassing would it be if they heard our prayers, right? God, give us traveling mercies. By the way, don't know what that is. It's in second opinions. All right? If you grew up as a Christian, you you know what traveling mercies are. Please tell me what they are, please. Um, Or, you know, God, give me a safe trip. Help my wife to find her car keys so that she doesn't make me late. You know, help my kids get into the right school. Thank you for this day. Thank you so much for this overpriced food. Jesus' name, amen. How embarrassing. You you want to say, like, really? That's it? Do you have any idea the price people paid for you to know that God, Jesus, is there? Can you even imagine? So is it worth it? Is it working? Yes. That 2,000 years Christianity is not just surviving, but thriving. So here's what he says to those people who are overwhelmed. And if you're here today and you're worried about the political system and about the party system and about who gets into president and your health care and all of this stuff, and I get it. There's this level of anxiousness and uncertainty for the future. I get that. And if that is you here today, here's what Jesus says to us 
when it looks like the world is coming apart. Here's what he says to us when it looks like the Christianity is in decline. Here's what he says to us when it looks like our candidate isn't going to get voted in. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, talking to you and me, throw off everything that what? Hinders. And the sin that so easily entangles. The writer is saying this. Listen, instead of blaming, instead of being critical, instead of being upset and anxious and nervous, he says, look into the mirror and I want you to, I want you to ask some questions. Here's a question I want you to ask. What is holding you back? What is hindering you? What is hindering you from going all in with your faith? Because the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. The more uncertain things are, the more the certainty of faith shines through. I mean, another question, what are you afraid of, really? What are you worried about, really? What is it that you need to throw off? What is it that you need to leave behind? What is it that's hindering you from embracing the uncertainty and moving into the the fearless future as a follower of Jesus Christ? Who's able to look back and say God has kept his promise to Abraham, that God kept his promise by bringing Jesus out from the grave. So whom shall we really fear? Whom shall we fear? And then he, he, he steps in and he steps on our toes even more. And he says this in verse, one, in verse 1. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Persevere. You persevere. I tell you, I don't see a lot of persevering in 2016. That means you don't back down. You don't get out. You don't check out. You don't say it's too hard. Are you and I going to persevere or are we going to join the complaint bandwagon, the blame wagon, and if onlys, and why can't it be like it used to be, and woe is me, and that God didn't answer my prayer by Thursday. So that's our challenge. Will we throw off everything that hinders us and hinders our, our faith? Will we throw off every excuse we have been making? And will we join with the people who came before us, who lived fearless and confident lives. Some of you, what would help your spiritual life is by stop watching the news. Seriously, you're fretting, you're pulling out your hair, oh my gosh, what's going to happen, oh my gosh, right? And it doesn't matter if it's CNN or Fox. You want to know how news make their money? Is they like reporting on bad stuff so that you will watch it so that advertisers will advertise with them. If, if nothing bad is happening, you know what they're going to do? They're going to find something bad. And that's just how it works. Some of you, it would help your worrying. It would help your fretting and, and your uncertainty. You would, be, you would live a fearless, more fearless life if you spent more time in God's Word and less time in Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever you watch. The author says this, In the meantime, whatever you do, this next verse is the key. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, and let us fix our eyes on the Republicans. You do that. Here's another another translation. Let us fix our eyes on the Democrats. You see, here's the thing. Go to the next slide if you would. Whatever you put in that blank is going to determine 
how you live your life and how you view your, your, your culture and your world. It's not the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. If you fix your eyes on Washington, D.C., you will be disappointed. If you fix your eyes on the Senate, you're going to be you're going to be cynical. It's not the state capitol, not any political figure, any person. If you fix your eyes on any person running this fall, you will lose heart. You will grow weary. You will be fearful. You will worry. You will live in uncertain times. You will be insecure. So whatever you fix your eyes on, whatever you put in this blank is going to determine how you live your life. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on who? By the way, if you didn't grow up in church, the, the one word you can put in there and always be right is what? Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. You see, that's our problem. Because for many of us, we don't fix our eyes on Jesus. It's Republicans. It's Democrats. It's donkeys. It's elephants. It's libertarians. It's tea partiers. It's whatever. And whatever you put in that blank, Our eyes are fixed on the wrong things. Our our eyes are fixed on safety and security and getting ahead and living an American dream. And who can we blame when the American dream becomes a nightmare? Who can we blame in Washington? Who can we blame for our culture and our nation? And as long as our eyes are fixed there, we will not run with endurance. We will be scared. We will miss every opportunity and our responsibility to be light into this culture. What are your eyes fixed on? What are they fixed on? If you fix your eyes on anything or anyone but Jesus, you will grow weary. You will lose heart. You will become cynical and jaded and fearful and insecure. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on on Jesus. Jesus always becomes the point of reference. That every single day, with whatever your anxiety, you take it to Jesus. With all of the fear, with all of the news, with all the economy, of all the ISIS going on in the world, of all the elections, whatever happens next, you ask this question, threefold question. Here it is. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? And how would Jesus respond? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond? Let's say that together, can we? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? And how would Jesus respond? If I could take these three questions and roll them up into our big idea today, it's simply this, that put your faith before your politics. I am challenging you to put your faith before your politics. That you put your faith filter up front and you put your political whole persuasion, whoever you're loyal to, what party, you put that in the back. And that whoever you go and you vote for on November the 8th, whether it's Republican or Democrat, that before you go in there, you have fixed your eyes on Jesus. That Jesus is our goal. That our salvation will not come from from Washington, D.C. I mean, think about it. When you face it for no other reason, nobody goes to Washington, D.C. when they die, do they? I've never been beside somebody who's dying, laying dying on their deathbed. And they ever said, Chris, will you, will you read me portions of the Constitution? You see, so there's some things that can happen in our lives that are more important. 
So faith and politics, absolutely they should mix. But these aren't hills for us to die on because at the end of the day, our King Jesus will reign supreme. No matter if a donkey gets put in there or an elephant gets put in there, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. Imagine if just for one day in our country, for a 24-hour time period, if everybody believes that Jesus is the Son of God, if everybody who's prayed the prayer of salvation, if for just one day, every single Christian for 24 hours would just ask those questions, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond? Let me tell you, church, that changed the world once. It did. And I believe it can change the world again. But our world will change not when we vote somebody into office, but when God, Jesus, reigns supreme in your life. And it's got to be more than just Sunday. Because if you live your Christian life just on Sunday, all the non-Christians who are in here right now, the reason why many times you don't go to church is because of people like us. When we just live our life just on Sunday and it doesn't affect anybody else, people call those people hypocrites. We've got to go all in with our faith. And he continues, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, which means he's the one that kicked all of this off, and the perfecter, which means in him he makes all things complete of our faith. The author has been saying he started it all, he completes it all, and look at this, verse 2. Who, talking about Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame. Now, here's the thing you need to know about the cross. You see, the cross is, yes, there was a lot of pain, a pain associated with it, but there's also a lot of shame associated with it. And see, I'm sure that Jesus as a little boy, he smelled a crucifixion but long before he ever saw one. Jesus as a child growing up in Judea and Jerusalem had heard the wails and the moans and the cries of the pain. Jesus, along with his whole community, understood the terror associated with the crucifixion. He understood the shame of it. He had seen what happens to a body that as it hung there day after day after day, as the person pulls up to be able to breathe and then let back down. And many times people who were crucified were suffocated because they could not breathe. And in that context, Jesus says, even though I've seen that, I'm going to the cross for you and for me. And he says, follow me. What in the world are you so afraid of? What are you worried about? What are you scared of in this political season? Who's for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he goes on, just when you think he's done, Consider him. That means fix your eyes on him. Focus on him. Who endured such opposition from sinners so that, here's the purpose. Here in the Greek is called a henna clause. Here's the purpose. So that, the reason for all of this, so that you will not, help me, grow weary and lose heart. Now let me tell you. If you're here and you're of voting age and you've been voting for a few political seasons, here's what I know about you, especially if you're 45 and older. You have grown weary and you've lost heart. And the reason why you've grown weary and that you've lost heart is you have fixed your eyes on a political system. 
and you've been passionate about, hey, you need to vote for this person or you need to vote for this person, and they have let you down. And let me just be the first one to say, they will always let you down if whatever you put in that blank is something besides Jesus. They will. Whether it's a Republican or Democrat. You've grown weary and you've lost heart. And for some of you, you are freaking out this political season. And I'm encouraging you to just stop it. Because what are, you sh- what are you sharing to the younger generation? What are you showing them of faith? That unless you get your candidate in office, then everything is going, ah! And you freak out and you're like, worried, you're worried, you're worried. And it's like, where is Jesus? Where is faith in all of this? See, what you're showing them is a lack of faith. And Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And you think it's all going to come unraveled. Let me tell you, it's all going to come unraveled if you as a Christian don't live like a Christian seven days a week. And even then, it won't come unraveled because Jesus, even though we are faithless, he is faithful. That's what 2 Timothy says. Y'all going to get me preaching. You see, it's not about our faithfulness. It's about that he is faithful. The things aren't going to unravel. And if they do, it's because he wants them unraveled. Nothing can be further from the truth. Yes, government matters, policy matters, but neither of these matter as much as men and women who understand this next word. Faith. Faith. That God keeps his promises. That nothing can thwart the plans of God. We know this from the Old Testament. We know this from the New Testament. We know this because the most powerful person in Judea, Pilate, who looked at Jesus and says, what is truth? Who said, crucify him, game over, he's done, he's dead, he's gone. The only reason you know who Pilate is, you know the reason? Come on now. The only reason you know who Pilate is is because you know the story of Jesus. You know the story of a Jewish carpenter, and this, this Roman governor becomes a footnote in Jesus' history. We have nothing to fear. So let's stop freaking out. Can we? Thank you. Now, if you're here and you're younger and you're like, I'm just starting to vote, or maybe you've only voted maybe a couple of elections, let me just say this to you. Don't fix your eyes on social media. Don't fix your eyes on a political... Don't even fix your eyes on us as the older generation. Because here's what I'm... I I got some good news I got to tell you. Because, you see, if you're 20 or 30 here, there was a group of 20 or 30-year-olds 2,000 years ago who literally put the world upside down because they believed in a resurrected Savior and they followed the teachings of a resurrected Savior. And if that happened once, it can happen again, that God can change the world through you. So don't, whatever you put in that blank, don't put my name. Don't put any of our names. Don't put Hillary. Don't put Trump. Don't put Cruz. Don't put Carson. Don't put Sanders. Don't put, I'm all out. Uh, There's like 50 of them. I'm just going to stop right there. If I didn't name your candidate, don't take it personally. But let me tell you who I am going to name. Jesus. He has the power to change your life. He has the power to change this country. But it's going to take men and women of faith to say, I am going to go all in. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus.
Are you willing to do that today? See, some of you, you're like, yeah, I come to church, you know. I, I, I make it rain in the offering plate with my $2, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, grew, I grew up and I, I was baptized as a baby. Doesn't that count? How do you become a Christian? How you become a Christ follower is by talking to God and you confess all of your junk and brokenness. The Bible calls that sin. And that sin separates us from God. But the reason why Jesus died on the cross is so that he could close that separation so that we could have a relationship with God. I love what 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 says. I, I, before I say this, I want to say I was reading that in a Bible on Monday to my mother-in-law who passed away on Monday. My wife, Kim, in, the, in a five-month time period has lost her dad and has lost her mom. And we're just reeling. But what I am excited to tell you today is that her dad and her mom knew what 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 told you. Joanne Williams had it highlighted in her Bible. And this is what it says. And the testimony of God is this. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son, Jesus. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Verse 13. These things I have written to those who believe so that you may know that you can have eternal life. Now, by that verse, my question I'm going to ask you is, do you know that you have eternal life? And it's not about a church attendance, and it's not about putting money in an offering plate. It's not about getting baptized as a kid or even get baptized later in life. It is all about asking Jesus to forgive your sins and asking him to enter into you. And if you pray that prayer, he will hear you. So I'm going to invite you right now. I'm going to ask everybody to close your eyes. Nobody looking around. Just you and God in this place. Just you and God. And before we pray, I want to ask you this question. Do you know that you have eternal life? Not hope for. Not, I hope I'm good enough. You're not good enough. But there once lived the God-man who was good enough. If you want to fix your eyes on Jesus this week, it starts by right now asking him into your life. So would you pray a prayer like this with me? Heavenly Father, God, I come to you today and I lay it all out there. All of my junk, all of my sin, all of my addictions, all of the stuff I've done that just is just nasty. And God, I pray that you would forgive all of that. And Lord, I pray that your son Jesus would enter into my heart, into my life, and to make me new. That he would wash me whiter than snow. All of that stuff that he would remove. And that I would be your child. So that I can know I have eternal life. So that I can fix my eyes on the Savior who gave his life for me. 
thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to invite you after the service, after we get finished singing, that we're going to be, there are going to be some staff at the Next Steps tent, and we would love to be able to celebrate with you and kind of show you what your next steps look like. But as we stand and sing, I just want you to sing like you're fixing your eyes on Jesus. Can you do that with me this morning? Can you do that with me this morning? Let's all stand up and let's sing. Let's go for it, church.